Please turn with me to Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14, and I'll begin in verse 11. Numbers 14, verse 11. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it. For you brought up this people in your might from among them. And they will tell the inhabitants of this land, they have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people, for you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them, in a pillar of cloud by day, and in a pillar of fire by night. Now if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them, that he has killed them in the wilderness. And now, please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. (laughs) Are we there yet? We've probably all heard or said those words before, especially if you have kids and you go on a long road trip. Mom, it's too hot. Dad, I have to go to the bathroom. I'm hungry. Are we there yet? Until finally you tell them, well, this is what my mom and dad used to tell me. We'll get there when we get there. Well, this morning, I'd like you to know Israel is on a very long road trip. But the problem is, they might never get to their destination. In Hebrew, the word we translate as the title for numbers literally means in the wilderness. This book, Numbers, is, it tells a story about Israel's time in the wilderness. And up until this point, um, in Numbers 14, Joshua has sent out the spies. He sends them into the promised land, into Canaan, in order that they might come back and give a scouting report about who's in the land and what they are up against. Well, when the spies come back, as you know, they come back with a bad report. They come back and God's people are shot through the heart. Uh, They are fearful. They're afraid. They begin to grumble and complain. 
Their dreams are deferred and dried up like a raisin in the sun. And they begin to have spiritual amnesia. They forget all the miracles God had done for them to get them out of Egypt. But while God took Israel out of Egypt, taking Egypt out of Israel would take a much longer time. So in verse 4, Israel groans and complains and they say, let's go back to Egypt. And they're willing to do away with Moses altogether and elect another leader in his place who will take them back. And now, we can, we can be very quick to judge and condemn them. We can say, oh, I, I would never do that. I would never want to go back to Egypt. After, after all, I've witnessed all these cool things, the splitting of the Red Sea, the, the hail, turning the water into blood. I would never do that. And yet, how many times do we go back to that very thing God has delivered us from? Sometimes we grumble and complain about having to put sin to death and leave it behind. Never mind that it enslaves you. Never mind that it ruins your life. Even as Christians, we think Egypt is better than the promises and blessings that God is holding out to us. So God tells Moses, I've had enough of this. I'm tired of these wicked, rebellious people. I've, I've done so much for them, and they're just unthankful. They're ungrateful. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to send a pestilence and destroy them. Now, the use of the word pestilence here is a little bit different than a plague. Remember, there were plagues heaped upon Egypt, um, and they signified God's judgment, divine judgment upon the land of Egypt. And that happened while they were in Egypt, and it happened a few chapters earlier in Numbers 11. However, pestilence is different. Pestilence is total destruction. It would destroy Israel completely, wipe them off from the face of the earth. Before they even made it to the promised land, God is ready to start over, and this is the great reset. And God's new plan will be to make a new people from the line of Moses. And imagine the honor. Imagine if God came up to you and said, my church is too sinful. I don't want them anymore. They're unthankful for their salvation. So I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to kill them all, start over. But this new people I'm going to make, I want you to begin it. I want you to start the new line. Our sinful hearts would bubble up with pride at that kind of offer, wouldn't it? But there's just one problem. Humanly speaking, the promises of God are in jeopardy. And this is our first point. The promises of God are in jeopardy. The promise in our text actually reaches far back to the covenant and promise God made to Abraham. God promises Abraham three things. Do you remember what they are? A land, a people, and the blessing of the nations. But in our text, these three promises are, from a human perspective, in jeopardy. Acquiring the land is in jeopardy. Israel is too afraid to go into the land. They might never make it there. The people are in jeopardy. God is about to destroy them and wipe them out completely. 
And finally, if they never make it to the land, they don't become an official nation. And so the nations outside of Israel will never experience the blessing that God has prepared for them. Instead of blessing God, the nations would mock and laugh at God because of Israel's destruction. In other words, there can be no plan B. There is no do-over. God cannot just hit the reset button because his word has already gone out. Promises have already been made to Abraham. And the land promise is the foundation of these other two promises. If Israel never obtains the land, then they never become an official nation, and the nations will never be blessed by them. Just like if the pilgrims and the Puritans, when they come across the Atlantic Ocean and coming to the New World, if they never make it to the land, then there's, America does not happen. Not, not through them, at least. And so God is very angry at his people. And when there's an angry God who's mad at a sinful people, they need a mediator. And this leads us to our second point where we'll spend the bulk of our time, the prayer of Moses. And this is our main point. Our main point is God's people need a mediator to pray for them. There are three things I want us to notice about this prayer. First, Moses appeals to God's glory, then God's power, and then God's character. When Moses intercedes for the people, he first appeals to the glory of God in verses 13 and 14. He says, Lord, you are too great. You are too mighty, too too glorious. What will the nations think of you? What will Egypt think of you when they hear that you led your people into the wilderness and just killed them off? Lord, they will mock you. They will laugh at you. He's concerned with God's glory. Now, glory can be an abstract concept, can't it? And it can be difficult to define. But simply put, glory is a human or divine attribute indicating significance, importance, or presence. So when we apply it to God, we're talking about his significance, his importance, and his presence. When you think of God's glory, think of his reputation. Think of his fame and the worth and value of his name. Many of you are probably familiar with the Watergate scandal of 1972 to 1974. The Nixon administration was found guilty of breaking in to the Democratic National Committee headquarters, and and they used government agencies to perform illegal activities like wiretapping, campaign violations. Now, Many people probably know little about the administration as a whole, but they do know about Watergate. The administration could have done so many good things for our country, but what they're known for is the scandal. And so it is for God. God could do all these awesome miracles and cripple the Egyptian economy, but if he fails at one point, if he breaks just one promise, If there's just one scandal, one failure on his resume, then it would tarnish his reputation before the world. This leads Moses to appeal to another attribute of God, 
First, he appeals to God's glory, but then he appeals to God's power in verses 16 and 17. One of the questions in Westminster Shorter Catechism is, what is God? Question four. And the answer is, God is spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. In other words, power is intrinsic to who God is. It's not just that God is powerful or has some measurable amount of power, but he's the standard by which we measure all other form of strength. So as Moses pleads with God, he argues that God's power is at stake. If God kills this people as one man, which is just another way of saying collectively, all together, at the same time, if God were to do that, then the nations will say, there's something God cannot do. That there is somehow inability in God. Now, there are things that God cannot do. God cannot lie. God cannot act contrary to his nature. But when it comes to salvation, when it comes to salvation, there is nothing our God cannot do. I'll say that again. When it comes to salvation, there is nothing our God cannot do, especially when it comes to the sin and rebellion of his people. That will not get in the way. There is not a rock too heavy that God cannot lift. And God proved that when he brought Israel out of Egypt. And they were complaining the entire time. His glory and his power were on display. He sent, remember, he sent the plagues. He, he sent the hail. He turned water into blood, struck down the firstborn, split the Red Sea. He literally moved heaven and earth to secure their salvation. And he continued to guide them by the pillar of cloud and fire. But if he did not complete the mission, if he did not bring them into the land, what would the nations think? God could do all of these spectacular things, but he he could not get the job done. And he swore that he would do it. That's what verse 16 says. He, He swore to give it to them. He made a promise, and now he appears to be breaking that promise. So finally, Moses believes that God's character is at stake. So he reminds God who he has revealed himself to be. He appeals to God's character in verse 18. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. And this is a quotation from Exodus 34, verse 6, when Moses says, God, show me your glory. Show me what you are like. Who are you, God? And God says, I can't do that. I cannot show you my glory or it will kill you. But I tell you what, this is what I'll do. I'll place you in the cleft of a rock and then I'll pass by you and let you see my backside. And these are the words that God spoke to Moses. Moses says, God, show me who you are. What are you like? And God responds that he's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Now, I love the shorter catechism. It's very precise. But there's nothing like learning who God is than from his own mouth. 
Let that sink in for a moment that this is what our God is like. He's slow to anger. How many times are we quick to anger, especially with our spouse, with our children, with our family members? And yet, our God is not that way towards us, and we deserve that. We deserve God's anger, and yet, no, he, he's still slow to anger towards us. He's abounding in steadfast love. How many times does it feel like, I have nothing left to give? I have nothing left in the tank. I've given it all I have. And yet it's not that way for God. God's love is never on E in need of a refill. But it's overflowing, abounding in love towards a sinful people. And here Moses is bringing up this previous conversation he had with God in Exodus 34. He's bringing it back to God's attention, but it's not like God forgot the conversation But Moses here is praying God's word back to him. And when you're praying, that's where you want to be. God, you told me who you are. You told me that you love me, that you're slow to anger, you're full of compassion. Do unto me according to your word. Manifest your good character toward me. And really, each of these elements, the glory, the power, and character of God, these ought to inform and structure our own prayers. When we pray, the glory of God should be front and center on our mind. Is what we pray for only to fulfill and satisfy a carnal desire that we have? Or are we concerned with how God answering that prayer will make him look? How awesome and good that will make him look to other people. We should also be appealing to the power of God. We must believe God is able and powerful enough to do all things in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. And finally, we should pray with God's character in mind. Knowing that he loves us, that he's patient towards us. And when we look at Moses' prayer, we see it is God-centered God-focused, God-oriented. And that's what powerful prayer is and looks like. God-focused, God-oriented, and God-centered. And yet oftentimes our prayers are me-centered, me-focused, me-oriented. And we know we ought to pray this way with our focus and attention upon God and who he is. And yet we still don't. We don't... Sometimes we don't even pray at all. We lack, and when we do, we lack heart. We lack the strength and the fervor. Our minds are getting distracted by all these different things. It can be just something that we can check off a box in the morning, and then we can get to the real work that we have to do throughout the day. The problem in our text is prayerlessness. Israel is too fearful and too afraid of their enemies in Canaan, but they are too stubborn and too unthankful to come to God in prayer, the one who would give them the strength. Unthankfulness will always breed prayerlessness. But the heart that is transformed 
that adores God and is thankful for all that God has done, it wants to express that gratitude to God. And that comes out in prayer. And so Israel needs an advocate. They refuse to pray. And so they need someone to pray for them. Someone to step in and stand in their place to pray on their behalf. And Moses steps up and stands between a sinful people and an angry God to intercede for them. And Moses obtains pardon for them. God ends up relenting. He does not destroy his people. But Moses is only a temporal mediator. He was still flawed, and while this time he would turn away God's wrath, just a few chapters later, in Numbers 20, Moses would soon fall and lack faith. He would not enter Canaan because of his moral failing. And even Moses' generation would die in the desert. And so this text points us to the need for one perfect mediator who turns away God's wrath and obtains pardon for his people. And that's our final point, the purpose of the prayer. The purpose of the prayer. In the, in the immediate context, the purpose is to obtain pardon for Israel, but if we take a, take a step back, if we zoom out, then the purpose of Numbers 14 is to point us to the one who prays perfectly for his people, the perfect mediator, and it is Jesus. And when we look at the prayer ministry of Jesus, we see his concern for God's glory, don't we? We see his concern for God's power to be made known. We see his concern for God's character. Jesus came to do the will of his Father he came to glorify his father. And we see that in John chapter 17. Could you turn there with me? John chapter 17. <clears throat> John chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. Here we see his appeal to God's glory. He says, Father, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. You have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And so here we see his concern for God's glory. He says, Father, glorify me so that you might be glorified, so that other people might see me and then give you the praise, give you the honor and you the glory. And then we go down to verse 14. And we see him pray for God to make his power known. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. He's saying the world is dark. The world is evil. There are many people who would try and destroy your people, God, but you are strong enough to keep them. You have, only you have the strength to do it. So guard them. Then verse 25. O righteous father. Even though the world does not know you. I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your power. And I will continue to make it known. That the love with which you have loved me. May be in them. And I 
in them. He's our righteous and loving father. And that's the same thing Moses appealed to in Numbers 14. A God who is both abundant and steadfast love, but he will by no means clear the guilty. So if Jesus prays this way, how much more should we pray this way? But it's not that Jesus is a mere model for prayer. We need him as our mediator. That's how he saves us. And that that ought to get us excited because we know that we don't pray as much as we ought. We know that when we try to pray, we're distracted by all these different things and we're weak. We don't know how to pray. We don't pray enough. And yet there is one who ever lives before the throne of God, always praying for you, interceding for you, and not just for a people, not just for this nameless group. He prays for you. He prays for you. He knows all the struggles you have. He knows all the sin that you seem to can't get rid of. He knows you by name, and he prays for you. You see, Numbers 14 and and John 17 are not abstract prayers or mere forms that we have to copy. Though we should be praying this way, but prayer is not like a vending machine. If I just put the right combination in, if I just do the right formula, then I'll get the desired result. No, these prayers are for God's people in that they are on behalf of God's people. They're prayers for real people with real sin to a God who is really angry at sin. And if you have not come to Jesus and repented of your sin, then God's wrath abides on you. There's a solemn warning in Numbers 14, verse 18. While God is slow to anger, if you do not repent... You remain guilty, and he will not clear you. Verse 14, he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation, which means he's going to be thorough. If you are a sinner, you cannot escape God's wrath. Not you, not your mom, not your dad, not your son, not your daughter, unless you repent and come to the one perfect and true mediator who shed his blood for sinful people like you and like me. Come to Jesus. That's the only way to break the cycle of sin. That's the only way to be found not guilty before a holy God. And for those who have come to know Jesus, know this one thing. He prays for you. He prays for you. Robert Murray McChain said, if he could hear Christ in the next room praying for him, he would not fear a million enemies. And yet, what does the distance matter? He prays for you. Let's pray. Almighty God, we know that we are weak. We know that when we wake up, we let the busyness of life impede upon our communion with you. Throughout the day, we often do not stop and pause and remember the privilege it is 
to pray to you, what it costs you to open that new and living way. And while your law convicts us and says, pray, pray as you ought, your gospel says, Christ always prays for me. He ever intercedes for me, for he has shed his blood as our great high priest. Help us to glorify him in all that we do. Strengthen us, Father, by your spirit. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.